0: Hey guys, it's Brandon. Just a quick note before we start today's awesome interview with the great J.W. Rinsler. The audio has some minor defects, mostly just a little background noise and some clicks throughout, but I just wanted to give everyone a heads up in case you're like super not into the faint sound of doing the dishes. But I really hope you enjoy this interview. This is one of my favorites ever, and I really hope it shows. Tuning in to another episode of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winnerty, and in this episode, we are talking to J.W. Rinsler, the New York Times bestselling author, and the inspiration behind this podcast. From his making of Star Wars books to working hand-in-hand with George Lucas, this is one conversation you won't want to miss. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 6, J.W. Rinsler. So much for, for taking the time. Um, I, I, have said it, I think in the email I sent you, but, but your books and, and your writing literally directly influenced like me, me doing this podcast. So, so thank you again.
1: Uh, no problem. You know, it's, it's instant karma. I was talking earlier today to Peter Beale. I don't know if that name means anything to you. He was, uh, he's actually in the star Wars book. Uh, the first one, I think he was the, uh, Fox executive in charge of UK Productions. And anyway, I was just talking to him about a different book I'm doing, and I was thanking him for taking the time. So it's instant karma.
0: (laughs) Perfect. So today we're talking to J.W. Rensler, New York Times bestselling author. Um, He's written numerous Star Wars books, especially focusing on the making of and behind the scenes, um, making of Star Wars, making of Empire. Your first, though, were for the Revenge of the Sith movies, right? The Art of and the Making of book. So maybe let's start at the beginning with your exposure to the Star Wars universe, or maybe just the movies of George Lucas.
1: Well, my my really my earliest exposure was, of course, going to see American Graffiti, which had as much and maybe more of an impact on me than Star Wars because I was just younger and it was the right age to see that movie. Which uh, it's hard to imagine the impact that movie had at the time because. It really was, if not the first, one of the first. And for me, uh, certainly for me, the first movie that had humor that was targeted at children or teenagers, you know, farting jokes, things like that. And the, the music and the cars, this I, this golden age, which somehow I missed because I, I was born in 1962 when these guys were mm-hmm. all graduating high school. And then there was the show Happy Days. And that just had a huge impact on my life and on and millions of other people, too. I was always interested in George Lucas as a filmmaker or as a person who made movies. I was not, I like Star Wars. I love Star Wars and I like the films, but I saw him as a, as just one of the more interesting artists of the 20th century and probably a genius.
0: No, I I definitely agree. And I, I think what makes you, especially the most interesting is I think you're one of the very few people to have talked to George in depth about so many of his movies and uh we'll talk about it a little bit later with frames especially and then i remember reading a piece you did for starwars.com about just like sitting down with him for a couple hours and talking i believe about return of the jedi those experiences and those conversations must be i mean you're kind of a gatekeeper of a lot of kind of george's thoughts and and how he perceives his own movies which i think is is super fascinating
1: it was fascinating uh, and I and it was a privileged position but just happened by a series of circumstances which i couldn't have engineered if i'd wanted to you know it was just something that i uh, that just happened by wh- whatever means you want to suggest uh you know because i i didn't even know i i was living in france for almost 10 years which is another story and i came back and i wanted to work in the film business and work for a video game magazine called game pro for a while mm-hmm. And I really wanted to work at Lucasfilm. And I'd heard there was a place called Skywalker Ranch. I didn't even know if it existed because the internet was just sort of starting out. You couldn't just look things up. Right. And I didn't know anybody who'd worked there, but I found out that it existed. And and back in the day, Lucasfilm just had a website. It was very primitive by today's standards. You just went and Mm. there was a list of all the jobs. And I'd look at that list every week or so. And I didn't even, I thought, that's where I want to work. That would be a, a cool place to work. I'm, sure, but I had no idea what I, I wasn't, didn't seem to be qualified for anything they did, because I was a managing editor, and then a job for an editor came up, mm-hmm. and I went in and was interviewed by Lucy Wilson, who, as it turns out, was the first employee of Lucasfilm, who was the head of the publishing department, and then, and then, I just thought, I was—I was, didn't know what the job was for, and there were two jobs, I think one was, other one was, and the, and the other was to do the non-fiction books, and I said, well, that sounds interesting, and that's the job I got, and then and it turned out that was the making of books and uh, so then that sort of that then then i started meeting with rick mccallum and that led to episode three and 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 pitching the idea that the book should be about production and not just a book about the visual effects because those kind of books are interesting but only cover really a small part of the movie making you know a substantial part but there are other substantial parts too
0: i think especially with star wars the visual effects take up so much of i guess the public interest that these stories of the art, or the actual cast, or the whole process of editing, kind of gets lost in the weeds a little bit. So, um, right. one of the first things I remember you doing, and I think one of the first things you touched while you were at at Lucas, was um, the Visionaries comic book and getting the art guys together to to tell all those stories. Can you kind of explain that a little bit to people who might not have have caught that?
1: So the Visionaries, yeah. So that happened. So basically, I I, I sold, I pitched the idea of doing like a a, a real comprehensive coverage of episode three to Rick, and he, bless his heart, said yes. <laughs> and uh, and literally, like days later, I was at the very first art department meeting for episode three. Episode two wasn't even out in the theaters yet, right. and it was me, George, I think Rick was there, but definitely Robert Barnes, Ryan Church, and Eric Tiemens. And so then I saw over, it basically a, pretty much almost a year, this just incredible outpouring of art. And it was amazing to me, How much was rejected? It's just these guys were so prolific. George couldn't have included all of it if he wanted to. And then you know some of it he he was getting to his vision, and these guys were helping him. And so I thought, God, these guys are also good storytellers and amazing. So what about let them do their thing? And uh, Dark Horse agreed. Then it was just it was easy. I just put them in touch with uh, Jeremy Barlow as the editor at Dark Horse, and he made deals with them. And then Faye David, who is the art department coordinator, he said well, you really should include Aaron McBride because even though he's not in the concept art department, he's great and he's been working at ILM and all that. And I didn't know Aaron much Mm -hmm. at all. But I said, sure. And then he's the one who did that great Darth Maul story, which led led directly to the resurrection of Darth Maul in the Clone Wars show. Yeah, so it it was really fun. Just so much fun to do.
0: Right, no, and you kind of brought up that Darth Maul... You know one shot has now turned into a, a whole revitalization of of the character and so i mean even just that kind of makes visionaries an important part of of star wars lore
1: i just want to say because this is just a good story i mean i remember he sent to me his attachment he said here's my idea of what darth maul should look like and i opened it mm-hmm. up and he had those mechanical chicken legs and i just thought oh my god that is so cool yeah, uh, this is this is I, I think I had this intuition like this is, you know, this is they're going to bring Darth Maul back once they see this. I swear yeah. it was just so could do not, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Nobody, nobody ever died, as we know, in the Star Wars world.
0: So you mentioned working with Rick McCallum a lot and being on the Revenge of the Sith you know, either in the art department or on the set itself. So maybe, kind of, what did you see there, and how did that inform the book? Because the other making of books for *Phantom Menace* and for *Attack of the Clones* um, are, you know, they're I have them and they're they're nice, but they don't go into the depth that you went into. So how did your time in the set kind of inform that process?
1: Well, it was just, you know, it was like a, it was a dream come true to be on the set uh, mm-hmm. and see a Star Wars movie being made, seeing George Lucas direct, seeing Christopher Lee, you know, everybody doing their thing that, and you know, walking around and seeing one set being torn apart while another set is being built and the guys in the, the paint department, you just get an idea of what a massive operation it is. And you go into right. the sort of, uh, headquarters and there's assistants, and there's people issuing travel orders and there's huge orders of lumber you know, wood arriving to build the set and right. and you realize just how what a wonderful, creative and crazy endeavor it is. So yeah. that overly opened my eyes and I tried to get that sort of feeling into the book, but at the same time I wanted to just, you know, you have to, as George said, point your camera where the money is and that's right. of course on the set with him directing and Ewan McGregor <laughs> and Natalie Portman and all that. I mean, a lot of that was just standing around for hours and hours just sitting there and waiting for somebody to say something or do something interesting (laughs) right (laughs) like come on guys yeah and uh so i mean it it was just an amazing experience being on the set uh and then also for the pickups at shepperton being at shepperton was just i mean that's where stanley kubrick filmed 2001 right and, and so many great movies have been made there so I don't know how I could answer it just everything just went into the, the book in fact I, I would have liked to have write, written a much longer book and if I did it now I'd probably add a lot of stuff that I didn't feel comfortable adding then because that was right. my first book and um, I was just trying not to get fired <laughs> right <laughs> and also you know and to do a good job
0: from Revenge of the Sith and the success of those books how did you then kind of Move on to the the big tomes, right? The right. making of Star Wars and
1: that well, what happened was even while we had a big meeting for Episode Three, the Episode Three book in New York with Del Rey, and this I can talk about a little bit more frankly now because I don't work there. Right. And we said, look, we want to make this this really great big book. We want to do this, and they they just sort of said, nah, we don't want to do that. It costs money. We don't want to do that. We just want to put out sort of the. It's not a cheap book. It's still an expensive book, but not what we had visioned so mm-hmm. what happened was on episode three you know i i had heard george was a shy guy and he is quite shy in a way and but i slowly got to know him and then i when i interviewed him for episode three it was really it was really fun and he really had a fun time too and i because i was asking him questions that most interviewers just don't ask because they just don't know what to ask right and but i'd seen so much and i'd been storing up questions for two years or something and so we were talking about editing and getting and and he was really having fun or i think uh, but at least was enjoying it more than the average interview right so then later not much afterwards and i think he saw the manuscript by that time and had some sort of confidence i pitched the idea of doing and making a star wars book and he said okay but we made this and now i sort of i knew more about what strings to pull and who i could talk to and i i was able to say this is we're now going to do it we're going to do a big book. And we still I still had to push. And still there was pushback on the number of pages, which is why the first making of Star Wars has two versions. The hardcover version is longer, but it's just storyboards because originally I wanted all those pages. By the time they told me we could, it was too late to change the first part. So all we could do is tack on the second part. So if the next two were... We really didn't, get, really didn't get it right till Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi, in terms of bookmaking is the best book and so it was basically just George having confidence in me and then I also knew where I, I learned I was learning where all the archives were because was like there were like six or seven different archives at Lucasfilm right. and you had to know where they were and who was there and then you know I slowly the people who were running them would ha- have more confidence and just leave me there to get on with it uh so it was just a whole bunch of things coming together in a way Luke George Lucas had created this all the parts of this amazing Ferrari You know, all these tools were there, but nobody had ever taken advantage of them to make books because it's really not anybody's priority. I just came along and sort of realized, man, there's all this stuff in the art department. There's stuff in the legal department. There's stuff in the (laughs) the licensing department. There's stuff – nobody's gone through any of these files in 30 years. and So I just did it.
0: Well, speaking of the files that no one has seen in in 30 years, I think what makes Making of Star Wars, in my opinion, probably – it's my favorite book I I own and I own – Every star wars book the but the interview the interviews you found from the actual set of Star Wars are around that time, so it's Mark Hamill not knowing this is a success or George Lucas that doesn't know if this is going to work, and those things that inform this right. book, so maybe talk about how you found those and and who kind of led you to those
1: uh it was basically if I remember correctly, it was basically Steve Sandsweet who said you know you should see whether they have these Charlie Lippincott interviews. <sighs> Mm-hmm. I see. I think he'd read them through, or some of them anyway, years before. And I said, "Oh, okay," because my plan was just basically to go back to all the original magazines and do the best I could, and do a few in, new interviews, obviously. And so I asked Joe Donaldson, who is the head wow. of the Ranch Library, I said, "Do you have? Do you know anything about Charlie Lippincott interviews?" And he said, "Oh, yeah, I think we have those." And nobody knew it was in them really. And then they were literally like two boxes, and I just started leafing through them, and and their files were there with the heading on the file, and I think the first one, I, I don't know, was like Robert Watt, pretty cool, then there was like a, a numerous George Lucas ones, and mm-hmm. Gary Kurtz. and I thought, wow, I wonder if they had the actors too, because they weren't in any kind of order, and then I just, right. oh, Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford, John yeah. Williams, and I thought, holy shit, <laughs> now, this is great, <laughs> I thought, yeah. This is so- this is it. Uh, then it was just a question of going through it. And it, mm-hmm. I don't want to make it sound easy because it wasn't easy. And this was the first archival book I had written. So it, it took a, a lot of work and also right. a lot of detective work because what happens when you do these books and you realize that the people who made the film 40 years before or 30 years before, they can't remember what happened. Right. And so you can kind of piece, you have to piece it together. And then some people have better me- memories than others. And fortunately, George has a really good memory. But, you know, some people can't remember anything. And so it's a lot of detective work. It's not easy.
0: Well, what's great about all three of the books now, and I guess this will be a good time to plug in at the end as well, there's the enhanced editions on on Amazon that you can buy that have the audio, that have the dailies, that have some of the on-set interviews, the video footage. And kind of the oh-shit moment for me was hearing, like, young George Lucas talking about Star Wars and even just, like, hearing his young voice and, like, you can hear the nervousness. You can hear kind of what he's experiencing, and it really kind of informs the entire thing. And so, um, I bring it up to everyone that even has a passing interest in the behind the scenes, because I think they're like seventeen ninety nine on Amazon right now. But they are probably the most incredible pieces of Star Wars behind the scenes stuff. We've you know.
1: Gotten, so thank you for saying that because they're also yeah. on they're also on iBooks, and they work really well on the iPad. Uh, you know, the, I really poured a lot of energy into those things. And one of the most disappointing moments in my in my time at Lucasfilm was again the publisher just did absolutely nothing to publicize them. I mean, not it, there's like there's stuff on those things that most Star Wars fans will love, and we like the equivalent of deleted scenes. There are deleted scenes on there. There are a couple that I found for I can't remember exactly what because it was a while ago now, but that's where we discovered the bloopers which right. somebody leaked onto the YouTube where it now has over 5 million hits. And that was that was amazing, because first we found just the sound. We found just the sound part of the 16 millimeter, And uh, Monica, who was working in the film archives, said, well, let me see if I can find the picture. And we thought, okay, and uh, she'll never find that. And next week she found it. Amazing. <laughs> two of us got to see the blooper reel that nobody had seen, for again, for a long time, and now yeah. everybody can see it. So that was yeah, it was just a lot of fun and hard work doing those. And so I, I want I want people to enjoy
0: yeah. them. You touched on it briefly, kind of your journey from making of Star Wars to Return of the Jedi. Um, is there anything that you wish you hadn't cut? I know you I know you included some stuff from Star Wars at the beginning of Empire. And so are there things that still that you wish that you had included, or, or things that you know that you've discovered after the fact that that you wish had been part of it?
1: Well, there was nothing. Really, that I wanted to include at the time that I couldn't get in
0: because
1: mm-hmm. uh, because we did have a good page count and, you know, nobody ever cut out whole sections of text or anything. But after the fact, yeah, there is some stuff that like, for instance, today, I just spoke with Peter Beal and there was stuff that he said about his experience making Star Wars that I would have liked to have put in the book. And I'm trying to there. There's been a couple other things that I would have liked to have known. Or put in the books, but I can't remember exactly what. I mean, it's always like that. The, the you know, people will come after me too, and they'll write you know, their own making of Star Wars books. You know, right. Once everybody's dead or something like that. Right.
0: So moving from the making of books, you really, I mean, you took this nonfiction role at Lucasfilm, really created something incredible. And I think one of the most you know incredible parts of it was the the frames project. Um, hmm. That you you did with George Lucas, and for people who who don't know, can you kind of explain a little bit? And uh, because I think that also kind of not went under the radar, but for what that is 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 an incredible piece of of Star Wars history.
1: Well, that's I mean that's a whole that was a saga for me, and I don't want to I don't want <laughs> to bore your listeners
0: because no.
1: I could go on and on about it. I mean, it was a five year, no, wow. Is it five years? I think it was five years. Or th- anyway, a- as episode three finished, George basically, I got the message to come over and meet George. Uh, in the you know, underneath the main house, of Skywalker is the editing suites, and there's offices, mm-hmm. and there's a w- watercolor of, uh, uh, of his dog, who inspired, whose name is Indiana. Right. George said, "Well, I wanna I want to go through now." look at all my films and I want to pull frame from them. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And, uh, but he explained it to me and, you know, about just about a week later, uh, me and George and Mike Blanchard basically just started with episode one and he had it all. Mike is the post-production supervisor and he had it all set up on these two screens and everything. It was just like pressing a button <laughs> was advancing about, you know, a few frames per second. And George would say, stop, go back forward that one and then i'd press another button (laughs) 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 this black and white thing and this went on for about a year Wow. Mike and I at times felt so stupid. We called ourselves the Frame Monkeys. We even had t shirts made. And yeah, and George actually really loved the t shirt when he saw it because <laughs> <laughs> we had an artist draw them up like in the style of Mad Magazine. Uh-huh. So that was kind of the stupid part of it. But then it was a fascinating process because mm-hmm. we were basically making this big, George, of course, when he does something, he wants to do it beautifully. And so right. it became this deluxe $3,000. Six volume in the massive sort of mahogany wooden case, right? And and also he always pushes the envelope. We were taking these thirty five millimeter film cells or digital files and blowing them up much bigger than they should be because you know publishing is really di- that's what George had to learn too is that you can blow them up <clears throat> on these huge screens but that's not the same as printing them it's a completely different process right so we had to we the publisher had to basically almost invent new ways of printing in order to get this book done and then at the same time George had this very complex way of organizing it where you know he he'd pull we only had room in each book for about 240 i think images otherwise the spine would snap because it, it was so big and so he wanted me to After he picked roughly 700 or so for each film, I'd have to go through and separate them according to these categories that he created. Mm -hmm. was uh, establishing shot, master shot, close up, lightsaber battle, two shot, three shot. And, you know, and I'm just the poor schmuck editor Uh and uh, I was not a film grad. But I mean, you know, it's not that complicated, but still we'd have the right. like, it was like going through this apprenticeship mm-hmm. where he would say, no, that's that's not that shot. This is that. And we and we spread it all out over this table with Mike. And then after that stage, we put them all up over the art department. And then, you know, it was a little bit about talking to George about just how a book functions, which is, you know, you're always it's obvious. But unless you, if you've never done it, you know, the two mm-hmm. pages that are facing each other tell a story. Look, mm-hmm. George is a fantastic storyteller. So we got that right away. But then it changed everything. You know, once episode one took a long time because we were all learning how to do it. And then it went a lot faster for the other films. But I think I was fired, almost fired twice. Never <laughs> actually fired, but almost fired twice during the making of that book because uh
0: uh-huh.
1: there, there was one screw up that I was not my fault, another screw up that definitely was my fault. <laughs> so it was a huge thing. And then, you know, it came out and George was really happy with it. And then Abrams decided to take it and basically shrink it down to what right. was a much more manageable size and uh, actually it's been uh, it sold quite well which I have to say yeah. I'm gratifying
0: yeah they even made a postcard set of it right so, yeah 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 so there you go your postcards now
1: yeah uh, it was just a, that and then the Star Wars art visions which was happening mm-hmm. parallel to that were these mm-hmm. massive projects Because basically what happened is George realized that he had somebody in publishing who he trusted more or less. And so he said, well, in fact, that happened while we were making frames. Suddenly he turned to me and said, I I have this idea to do a book, a series of books, all the art of Star Wars. We'll do, first we'll do, we'll just get painters and all kinds of painters. We'll have them do their thing. And then we'll do comic books and then we'll do illustrations and then we'll do posters and we'll do concept art. Just basically in about five minutes gave me about eight years of work. (laughs) and i'm not exaggerating
0: yeah no and all those books turned out he knew what he was doing yeah so
1: yeah and and so it was just and then there were other books too it was star wars and history Mm -hmm. and he had a whole we didn't that didn't work out the way we imagined it you know he wanted to do a whole line of those books um that didn't work he wanted to do a history of Uh, digital filmmaking which we got fairly far on but then had to pull the plug I mean it it was very it was a fascinating time working with him you never knew if the phone was gonna ring and you would just be off and running I'm sorry I just just keep babbling on here so
0: this is you know I think (laughs) uh, if someone is listening to this podcast they will want to hear a little bit of a rambling on George Lucas. I'm sure. I'm sure they will. They'll love it. So okay, good. I, I think one of the things you can touch on real quick the the Lucas book imprint that he was kind of running with with Cinema by the Bay and that kind of thing. I know that you kind of had some initial help with all that when it was first getting off the ground.
1: Right, right. That is actually uh, what well, is going to keep babbling on. That's that's exactly right. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> Look there you um,
1: go. That was actually before. Yeah, uh, we had this big meeting with him and Rick and Lucy, and me, and a couple other people, and uh, he wanted to do a book about Bay Area filmmaking. Mm -hmm. He actually wanted to do two books, and then he wanted to do one on death statistics, and he wanted to do one on the the real finances behind movie making. Mm -hmm. He wanted to pull back the veil, and he wanted to do another one on childbirth. So, for about a year, so maybe longer, I worked with Lucy on those, and it was fascinating. We went, you know, we talked to, what's his name, who's the head of ILM at the time. And then he went over to Pixar and I can't, Jim Morris. And, uh, we talked to, uh, other film, you know, people sort of in the, in the Bay Area filmmaking community anyway. And it was really for me eye uh, because I realized that I grew up in Berkeley, which is just across. So, mm-hmm. you know, there was this, I grew up in Berkeley and, uh, there was this incredible Northern California filmmaking community, which I knew very little mm-hmm. about. And it even turned out that my neighbor, a guy named um, Chick Kallenbach, ran Film Quarterly for UC Berkeley. And George used to go over there when he was just starting out to meet other people who were doing making films and mm-hmm. talk films and you know the, every aspect of filmmaking. So it was it was great. But then they separated Lucy from us. She went to go work at the ranch. We were sent to Big Rock Ranch. Uh, they kept me on the Star Wars stuff. But I still would go see right. Lucy. And sort of pitch in, but she really, but then she really ended up finishing all those books. You
0: no, know, when I was doing research for this interview, I, I realized that I didn't own actually a copy of Cinema by the Bay, so I actually ordered it this morning. I was like, okay, if there was one left on Amazon. I was like, okay, let me just make sure that I can, yeah, that I can have that in my collection. So, a couple of things. So I don't want to keep you too long. Um, one of the things that I've loved that you you worked on was your comic book adaptation of one of the screenplays of Star Wars. And right. it was, I remember it coming out and it was kind of at the tail end of the old canon, you know, and, and the Dark Horse involvement. So maybe talk about that a little bit because I think that was, it was so weird and different and just innately Star Wars, really.
1: Well, you know, I read all the scripts of Star Wars mm-hmm. and I tried to make it into Star Wars and I thought, boy, you know, this rough draft is so different. It's fascinating. This, this would make a great comic book. But I couldn't get any, I can't remember why, oh yeah, I asked George, I said, can we make a comic book out of this? And he said, no. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> but then at the same time, we were doing the Star Wars art comics, <clears throat> George was telling me how much he loves visual storytelling without any dialogue balloons. Then I also found out that Randy Stradley over at Dark Horse had the same idea as me that this would, you know, he'd read the rough draft, so that would make a great comic book. So we talked, and I said, look, I think I know how to do it you guys I'll write up a couple I'll write up a couple scenes the kind of scenes that I know George likes and you hire an artist and we will just do it without any dialogue at all we'll show it to George and maybe he'll say yes but that we have a much better chance because he's not yeah. going to do it based on a verbal description right so and I knew what he wanted I knew what he really wanted to see was the wookies in spaceships attacking the death star I just intuitively knew it <laughs> <clears throat> so we did a number of scenes. Including the Wookies in their ships attacking the Death Star, and I just sent it over to George, and I said, "Can we do it again?" This time it was in a memo form, and he said yes, and he was actually excited about it. Uh, he was going to look at everything. He wanted to see concepts, and he wanted to see everything. And I gave him my whole adaptation, and he didn't change anything. I, I think I added one or two scenes, and you know, the yeah, others combined stuff, but didn't change that much because the idea was right. this is it. Um, but then he sold the company. And I went to go see him with like the first stuff and he said, ah, I don't want to see that stuff anymore." Yeah. So show it to Kathleen Kennedy. and I said, "I don't think she's interested in seeing it." Yeah, uh, but, but anyway, we went on to do it, and uh, it was pretty successful and, yeah. and I think now they're do, they, they're, do, they're doing the same thing for Planet of the Apes. They're uh, putting mm-hmm. out the Rod Serling version right. of the script. So maybe we started a trend.
0: Yeah, I've always wanted to see the the Lee Bracket version of Empire, something like that too. I think that'd be super interesting.
1: It would be, but, and there's and even the early version of Jedi, you could do all yeah. three. But right now, the the regime that's in in publishing or at Lucasfilm, shall we say, is not interested in looking back anymore. I think they're only looking forward. Right. Cool.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. So quickly, because I'm sure you you have to go. One of the things I really just had to talk to you about were your Clone Wars episodes. Um, you did two. Um, we kind of maybe talk about that and and giving Jar Jar Binks a, a girlfriend <laughs> I think is something that that any well, fan would want to hear about. So,
1: well, you know the the basic stories came from George. It was his idea. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly. I mean, I'm sure I had a couple ideas, and also the final form that those got to on the screen had little to do with what I had written. Mm-hmm. But still, it was a great experience because I got to sit in the writers' room for two weeks, which was very intimidating. And, uh, uh I'd never done that before. And then as it turned out, we didn't really get to the stories he wanted to do with me. So then I ended up with, in a room with just George, me, Christian Taylor, I think, and Dave Filoni mm-hmm. to, to hash out the Jar Jar stories. And, 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 actually was, I was in a, I was in an elevator with George when he turned to me and said, you have to, uh, what was the, you use a specific word. It's like, you have to rehabilitate Jar Jar. Uh-huh. You know, he because you know George, when he decides, he digs his heels and is like, he loves yeah. the Ewoks and he loves Jar Jar Binks, and but he's going to tell him contrary. And uh, so I was had to rehabilitate Jar Jar, and mm-hmm. so I so we worked out a story, and he wanted it to be kind of like an Indiana Jones episode, but with uh-huh. Jar, Jar Binks and pair it up with Mace Windu, which I thought right. was a great idea. Right. I think the only the only thing that I remember. Is, the only thing that I remember liking that survived was uh, was what Jar Jar calls Mace Windu, and I can't even remember what it is. But anyway, uh, so but anyway, it was it was it was fun, and I got to get a credit, and yeah, and uh, so that was fun.
0: That is funny, yeah. I mean, you're you're talking to uh, a guy who dressed up as Jar Jar Binks for Halloween. You're October ninety, October ninety nine. Yeah, there is there is picture evidence. Um, you, at, for Jar Jar and Ewok apologists, I'm I'm first in line. So,
1: what what did you like about Jar Jar?
0: Well, also, I mean, I am a special edition fan. So I was five years old when special editions came out. I was seven when Phantom Menace came out. So really, the the prequels were were made for for me, right? So, um, I think mm-hmm. just just the character and and you know it, the comedic bent. Works very well for for a seven year old, and even watching now, you're like, okay, like yeah. we can see what he was doing, and even now with Andy Circus and and all these things, Jar Jar Binks is probably one of the most important characters and in, in modern cinema just because of the technical you know technical advancements that.
1: Yeah, George was always pushing the envelope every yeah. every single film, and what people don't realize is that even though he championed digital, I mean, he was you know he was like the champion of digital filmmaking, right. He wasn't stupid about it. On episode three, they made more models than the first three films combined. Right. So he didn't throw out the old with the, with the new. He, was, right. there, he, he wanted it downplayed because he had, he, had a, he was on a crusade to, to get people mm-hmm. to switch to digital. But he, he, the model shop was in full. I mean, they were yeah. making huge models. The whole Mustafar was a giant model. He didn't right. just do it digitally. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jar Jar. I remember I took that. Fil- I saw episode one in a preview. I went I took my daughter who was about 10 or 11, my older daughter. And she just she said something she'd never said before. When, she, when we got out, she said, Is it over already? She never other wow. words, she was having so much fun.
0: Yeah, but
1: she didn't want it to end. Uh, how many people see movies and have that kind of reaction? And I thought it was great. And I was really surprised. When everybody started criticizing it, I just don't didn't understand it, and now, of course, I can understand it. Right. But I, but I still, I'll probably alienate some of your viewers, your listeners. But
0: they'll they'll survive.
1: But (laughs) you know, all the Star Wars movies have flaws. You know, obviously, the first two have fewer flaws. Uh, You know, you can always criticize a movie, and Episode One has so many things going for it. I, I think it's a really good film. I really do.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have even just the pod race by itself. Absolutely. Is incredible. Even just the sound of the pod race makes it a good movie, period. Well, <laughs> like, ben, so.
1: ben Burt would be happy to hear you say that. And I, uh, you know, I did a book with Ben. Uh-huh, and, the Sounds uh, of Star Wars. Yeah. And uh, I, I think he's, I think they should be having exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art dedicated right. to his sound design. He is right. a, a, an artist of a rare type who makes mm-hmm. these uh, symphonic or, or tone poems in, in movies. Mm. And George is very conscious of that. And he's almost the only filmmaker, certainly the only major blockbuster kind of filmmaker to be conscious of that. The, po- the uh, speeder bike race in Jedi, the, uh, the pod race that you mentioned, and the uh, asteroid chase in um, episode two, those are works of art. You can just isolate those Right. And study them, and if you understand how those things work, you will be a great filmmaker, yeah. or at least a at least a competent one. A co-
0: right. <laughs> I mean, if we want to talk about Ben Burt for an hour, we can talk about – because, I mean, really, it's it's Lucas, it's Kasdan, it's McCory, it's Williams, and it's Ben Burtt, and that's kind of – and Marsha Lucas, but that's pretty much who makes Star Wars Star Wars, so –
1: yeah yeah and it's, it's nice that you mentioned Marcia because yeah, she was yeah. very important, and that that's something that George is very sensitive about for obvious reasons, right. and uh, I don't want to trespass on his personal no, of feelings, not. but she but she was important, extremely right. important, and also uh John Barry, is, mm-hmm. is an unsung hero that George didn't make too many mistakes, not many mistakes He didn't make too many corrections to the manuscripts, uh-huh. but one of the corrections was to his own a quote that from him where uh-huh. he said something about John Barry and he, I can't remember what he crossed out, but he, but he crossed out somebody and, and he replaced it with the word genius. He, okay. So G- George Lucas thought John Barry was a genius and I've wanted to do this. I mean, Ralph McQuarrie, I, I spent a, a fair amount of time with Ralph and he deserves all the credit in the world. And he was a great artist, but John Barry was the guy who built the sets with right. with Roger Christian and Les right. Billy and Norman Reynolds mm-hmm. and without those guys, there was no film you know they were there were those great English artists who were had that great training who really knew how to do stuff and I mean yeah. build stuff that just looked fantastic you know and then that same team went on to do alien
0: right we I talked to to Roger for an hour and he spent probably ten minutes talking about just see through eyes, eyes it was just <laughs> yeah. like the best 10 minutes of my entire life i was like this is it this is because i mean um and his book cinema alchemist is um is a, a nice little addendum to your like making of right. star wars and cinema alchemist are, are great kind of companion pieces so
1: well i felt really bad that is one of the things that you know when i did the first star wars I was like you, i'm just there's there was such it was such a big deal to write a book mm-hmm. about star wars i thought well i'm just going to use these interviews It'll be very pure. It'll be just based on these interviews plus a couple other things and, and the research. So that way it'll be the purest form and not people talk, change, you know, mythologizing stuff 30 years after the fact. Right. Roger, but Roger was not, was, he's mentioned, but not a whole. Yeah, he's
0: mentioned, I think, two or three times. So I went back and looked when we were interviewing him and he was only in the index a couple times.
1: Right. And so when I did the blueprints book, I talked mm-hmm. to Roger and I talked to more guys who were sort of in the trenches. And I realized mm-hmm. that, you know, they didn't really get their due in the star Wars book as they should have. Mm-hmm. And so the blueprints book in a way makes up for that. Right. And then Roger and I got to be friends. And so I ended up editing his book. I wasn't, like mm-hmm. I wasn't, publisher editor but before he mm-hmm. sent it to the publisher he sent it all to me and i mm-hmm. helped as much as i could with the star wars parts and, and other right. and a few things uh, so i i feel like i made up
0: for it <laughs> <laughs> you did your part yeah no that's that's great yeah no um that book's incredible and and yeah your book is is kind of is kind of the whole inspiration for this entire entire podcast so um with that uh i'll, I'll leave you to it um i know that there's a few things that you've been working on in the meantime that I would love to talk about just very briefly if you wanted to plug anything um your your all up book if you want to talk about that
1: yes so all up so in doing these behind the scenes nonfiction books I I you know I was always telling a story actually after episode three we, I did was drove around and ended up in Huntsville Alabama and I went to the space museum there and it just blew my mind mm-hmm. and, and then when I was a kid I saw the moonwalk I was I was a, I think mm-hmm. and um, a lot of things just sort of came together and I thought I, I could do a sort of behind the scenes of the space race and I did about four years of research and it was really a passion project and I, I've written basically a, a history of the space age which is unlike, but it's not nonfiction. it's a novel because I wanted to be able to say things and get into people's heads mm-hmm. and also get into some of the esoteric things that your nonfiction book either can't or won't get involved with because officials, histories just don't want to talk about certain subjects that once you get into it are right there in the foreground but nobody wants to talk about it. And also I started instead of just talking about the space race it it goes back and talks, it begins with even before World War II with Godard and it it talks a lot about uh, the the Russian Korolev who is, Mm. you know, most people have never even heard of him but he was the running the the Russian, uh, the Soviet Union space program, and is an incredible character. So in a way, the book is like a triple biography of Werner von Braun, Korolev, and the American Jack Parsons, who Mm -hmm. was this guy who was into white magic and sex magic and was also a co-founder of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. (laughs) You know, so these are just... And there's other characters. It's such an incredible story. It goes through World War II and the V-2 and how the Germans were brought to America... It's just such a fascinating story, which almost nobody really knows right. all of, or even any of. And so, I've written a book about it, which you can get uh, on Amazon. You can get it, yeah. You can get it on any elect as an ebook on any platform, right? And as a physical book, only on Amazon. Perfect.
0: And then I know, I know the other uh, major project that you can talk about is um, coming out this fall, I believe, the making of Planet of the Apes. So that's right. Um, Getting back to getting back to behind the scenes,
1: yeah, yeah, that was really fun. I, you know, I again, so much of when you see a movie has something to do with how old you are, right? Because we just you, the way you see it is different. And I saw, I wasn't told what I was going to see. We went to this drive-in in Cape Cod, mm-hmm. and suddenly there were apes on horsebacks, <laughs> and, and I was, I was again, it was the same. It was, I was six or five, but I could understand uh-huh. what was going on. It scared the hell out of me, marked me for life, and so. Fox called me up and asked me if I had any ideas for books, and I said, "How about a fiftieth anniversary Planet of the Apes, but not yeah. the whole series, just the one movie, the yeah. great movie, the fantastic right. movie, you know, with Charlton Heston and Roddy McDowell. I mean, in these great, and John Chambers did the makeup, and uh, and it turns out I didn't even know because uh, you know, I was holes in my education. Franklin Schaffner, the guy who directed Patton and Pat the uh. directed it." And uh, Rod Serling helped write the script. But then this guy, Michael Wilson, who I knew nothing about, was actually the guy who wrote the script. And he uh-huh. was a guy who worked on Lawrence of Arabia and the Bridge on the River Kwai, great Frank, Krap, Frank, Frank Capra book, uh movie, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. fantastic screenwriter. And this guy and the producer, Arthur Jacobs, was this amazing press, re- press guy who became a producer who spent four years trying to get that movie made it laughed out of god knows how many offices could people said talking monkeys are you out of your mind you know and yeah. and of course the PR Bull who wrote the original novel so it's just an incredible story and it was so much fun to learn about and yeah. uh, again i don't think the complete story has ever been told yeah so i'm hoping people will like the book
0: no i, I you you mentioned in the email and i was just like this is this is going to be great so uh, really looking forward to that Thank you again for for taking the time and and running through all this with us. Um, This has been a huge honor, obviously. So um, I really just, I appreciate it.
1: Uh, It's my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me.
0: That will do it for this episode of Talk Bay 94. Again, I want to thank Mr. Rinsler for the time and the stories he told about George, Jar Jar's girlfriend, and the books that mean so much to me and I'm sure so many of you. For more information and updates about Mr. Rinsler's upcoming projects, including All Up and The Making of the Planet of the Apes, check out JWRinsler.com or follow him at jwrensler. On our next episode, we talk to Java's left-hand man, literally, Toby Philpon. So stay tuned, leave a five star review, and may the force be with you.